0: Today in the garage, we have Naomi Lutz and Andrew Ferguello. Naomi Lutz is an associate with the law firm Greenspan Humphrey Weinstein. She graduated with honors from the University of Toronto Faculty of Law in 2010. Naomi has a diverse practice representing clients in both criminal and regulatory trials and appeals with a particular focus in criminal asset forfeiture and appellate advocacy. She has appeared before all level of courts in Ontario as well as at the Supreme Court of Canada. She also appears at the Law Society and other administrative tribunals. Andrew Fergielli is the principal lawyer at Ferduelli Law, where he and his associates represent clients in criminal and quasi-criminal matters. Andrew conducts both trials and appeals. He has appeared before all levels of courts in Ontario as well as at the Supreme Court. He frequently speaks at conferences and events about criminal law and has taught criminal procedure at the Faculty of Law, University of Toronto. Whether you're driving your Audi A3, picking your Stratocaster, or drafting an appeal, Step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get to it. Naomi, Andrew, thank you for being in the garage today. Thank
1: you so much for having us in the garage, Marco.
2: Yes, thank you. Happy to be here.
0: I'm happy to see that um, Naomi decided to come in today. Andrew's been here before, but Naomi has a very unique experience that I wanted to explore, so I'm happy that she came in today.
1: you were clearly happier to see her than me when we came in. I just say that.
0: I'm always happy to see you, Andrew. We see each other a lot. Naomi, I want to start because you have a unique uh, experience getting into criminal law because originally you actually worked or summered in New York.
2: Yeah, that's right. So I actually always wanted to be a criminal lawyer, um, and I did clinic work when I was at U of T, as a lot of people do when they're in law school. And that cemented that, yep, I absolutely want to be a criminal lawyer, but I wanted to make some money first. And so I decided to do the New York OCIs and I was uh, hired to summer, the the summer between my second and third year of law school. And I spent that in New York at a, one of the big, you know, like your big typical hundreds of lawyer firms.
0: I want to just ask about that experience because the only uh, understanding I have of that experience is from TV. Suits? Uh, suits. I've been actually watching one that's called Partner Track right now on Netflix. I watched
2: that. I binged that whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: so okay. So for those of you who haven't watched Partner Track, it's about young uh, lawyers working in a big firm in New York trying to, you know, become partners. And when I saw that and I, I you know, knew that Naomi was, you know, experienced that, I wanted to see how accurate that was.
2: I would say it's not very accurate, um, particularly the role of a summer student uh, in New York. They're Basically, they're grooming you to stay. That's That's the point of a summer student. You don't really work that hard. There's events. You know, let's go to the baseball game. Let's go out. They're just throwing money at programming. So it's not a hard job, I would say. But nevertheless, I hated it. <laughs>
0: Oh, oh. <laughs> sounds like it uh, sounds I was like I and died. I couldn't stand it. I couldn't stand it. We, <laughs> me and Andrew, are, are dying for an experience like that. <laughs> so what? So what? What was that experience like, though? For real.
2: So, um, and just to give you some context, you know, the summer was the summer was great. I was living with two of my best friends from law school. All three of us were down there, subletting this beautiful house in the West Village and having a grand old time but on day two of of my job I came home and said no this is not for me it doesn't matter how much money I'm being paid I really need to do criminal law and I'm gonna apply for articling immediately and my housemate Max said you're still in orientation <laughs>
1: <laughs> when you know you know <laughs>
2: No, it, but, you know, it, it's not as if it was being worked too hard. Just I found the work completely meaningless to me. The fact that I did not understand why I was doing a particular task because it wasn't connected to a person or it wasn't connected to any kind of meaningful outcome. And so I just said, yeah, I don't know, even know what I'm doing here. This was a mistake. Back I go to Toronto.
1: Well, I mean, so I was going to ask you, name, like, was it the work or was it the the people and the firm itself, but I mean, you've answered it's the work. Yeah. Like, all three of us have done articling interviews, associate interviews, student interviews before, and we all ask the same first question to the people who come in. Why criminal law? Because you want to get a sense of whether they either have the passion or they don't, and if you don't, you're not going to last long in this job because it's a hard job and the stakes are high, but if you've got it, as you do, you're you're not going to last anywhere else. well
0: that's a, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned interviews so so what's the answer tell what's the answer or an answer that you can remember that you you were impressed by as somebody as a, when somebody interviewed at your firms respectively
2: I don't know if there's one right answer but I think what I always look to shine through is some passionate about something whether it's you know whether it's intellectual passion about the work, whether it's about helping people, but it's, the person needs to be enthusiastic about criminal law.
1: Yeah, it can be any number of different things. I mean, it can be just that that's what you know you want to do and you've always known, um, or there can be some discreet thing that's happened, some flashpoint in your life that has crystallized for you that not just criminal law but criminal defense is where your passion is and and if you're a prospective student listening to this that's what we're all looking for first and foremost when we do these interviews not just why criminal law because of course criminal law is interesting it's easily the most interesting law there is to practice like that that, it's beyond question (laughs) but but if you want to work on our side of the table why because it's hard, it's a hard job, and it's it's a hard profession, it's a hard life, and we want to know that. Why do you have the passion to be a defense lawyer?
2: Yeah, and we actually often ask, or someone will throw out a question, you know, in articling interviews, philosophically, you know, what do you, either what do you see the difference crown and defense, or could you ever be a crown just yeah. to get someone's a read on people?
1: Yeah, I, that's right, that's right. It's it's why not crown. It, it, and that that sort of follows what I was saying exactly, which is you know of course you're interested in being a criminal lawyer, but why wouldn't you go pick the sign the side where you're going to win more often than not?
2: Where
0: yeah. you don't. Do you
2: like losing? Yeah,
0: I
1: mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's the one, that's the.
0: Uh, another especially question. as we're
2: going to talk about appeals. Do you like losing? Right. Be an appellate that's lawyer. Right.
0: But hold on, hold on, hold on. If they say, I could be a crown. Is that is that. A write-off for you?
1: No, no. It's not. A, uh, yeah, we're aligned on this. I think it's not, Naomi. It's not a write-off for us. I I know it isn't for you guys. No, either. it's not. I.
2: But I want to hear the explanation.
1: Yeah, and I, I I want to hear. Okay, you can be a crown because it's it's important for our system that we have dedicated, professional, intelligent crowns. But why do you want to be on this side? Mm-hmm.
0: So, what What's a good answer to that? What's a good answer to but, Yeah, I could be a crown.
2: I think. Uh, I, uh, maybe something like yes, I yes I could because I think it's for the reasons Andrew said. You know, if the person says I think it's important that we have prosecutors who you know are X, Y, and Z, and I think I could do those things philosophically. However, what I'm really drawn to is defense work for the following reasons. Then, then I'm not going to write off that person.
1: Yeah, it, it, but if you're going to do defense, I want to know personally why you're you're drawn to it there has to be something that points me to why in
0: your soul you want to be a defense lawyer. So what if a person says, no, I can't be a crown? A lot, and a
2: lot of people do, either because right. they think that's the right answer or because truly they, they don't ever see themselves as that, and, and that's fine too. Some people can't, just like there's some, I've got friends who are crowns who could never in a million years fathom being a defense lawyer.
1: That's right. I answered that way in my, in my article interviews. I told uh, uh, everybody that I interviewed with, Many years ago now, uh, I said I, I respect what crowns do. I, I think it's important, but personally, it just doesn't align with who I am.
0: As a defense lawyer, you know we we have to get used to the system really hammering down on us. Do you agree? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yes.
0: It's not, and, and has it been, like, in your practice experience, has it ever been more difficult to practice criminal law than it is today? I mean, I know we're going to take subjective perspective, and if we talk to generations before us, they're going to say, oh, you didn't know what it was like pre-stinch comb, yeah. you didn't know what it was like yeah. where, you know, pre-charter, but, I mean, right now, I don't know.
1: I, I, I worry, though, about comparing eras like this, because everybody always does that. Like you always, when you start to complain about how hard it is now, you hear many of the older lawyers saying exactly what you said. Oh, you guys think you had it bad now. But then you catch the same lawyers on a different day and they'll say to you, man, it's worse now than it's You don't know how good we had it back then. It's all relative in terms of when when it's hard or not. I I think the easy answer for me is it's always hard being a defense lawyer. It's always been hard. It'll always be hard. And when there are problems that people identify with the system, we're the easiest target to be picked on. We're the easiest outlet to actually tilt the system more in a direction where the public wants it to go, which is almost invariably going to be pro-prosecution.
2: Yeah, and I... I I I hear what you're saying and maybe I'm not senior enough to be saying what I'm saying cuz I've only been practicing for, you know, 12 years and not 50 years to have a more global view but it does seem like we're in an era where particularly sexual assault law it, it's it's to say it's a grind, you know, there's just so many obstacles between the state of the law and then adding on top of that all of the procedural hoops that one has to jump through in terms of filing applications and meeting different things and just the workload itself that the law has generated. And then we put COVID on top of that and the downloading of various procedural steps to defense counsel. And it really does feel like we're just being kicked from all sides.
1: Yeah. I I, I really want to highlight what Naomi said about the procedural, because in terms of substantive criminal law, there have been a lot of positive developments over the last number of years. A lot of the more regressive uh, parts of criminal legislation uh, from the past 15 years were struck down by the, criminal, uh, by the Supreme Court and, and, and have been struck down by other courts. Those are almost invariably substantive pieces of law. They are sentencing regimes or issues. Um, they are uh, offenses um, or portions of offenses, or the restriction of defenses um, that are set out in the code. That, that's positive. Where the flip is, is on the procedure. And if you look at the the case law, and, and and Naomi, I think, is absolutely right to highlight the sexual assault area of criminal law, procedurally, that has not gone well for the defense bar. There have been not just a number of more procedural hoops and hurdles put in front of of the defense. But those hurdles force us to now practice in ways that 30 years ago nobody would have ever considered. Um, There has been more pressure on defendants to disclose their defense before trial than has ever happened before. And in sexual assault law now, there are any number of procedural steps in the 276 and 278 regime that now essentially force us to disclose our defense before trial. And that is a fundamental procedural issue, where the weight of it has been unrelenting and coming down on the defense bar.
2: Yeah, and, and not just disclose it in advance of trial, but you know, sixty days, ninety days, and to meet all of the deadlines that are now being imposed on on people.
0: But even with respect to the substantive legal successes that you we've had as from the defense bar, I mean, we had to. F- it's it's basically fighting for those changes that occurred while we've been practicing, like the, all these mandatory minimums and whatever other things we can think of. We had to fight to, re- to
2: take us back to where t- we were before Parliament did all of that. That's so. right, yeah. but they-
0: that, that's being a defense lawyer, right?
1: <laughs> like when you have your client, what you're doing is fight th- fighting to take them back to square one. That's what a win is, and we won those. That, that's my point. You're right. We had to fight to get them. You're absolutely right. But we won. We won on a lot of those. We're not winning on the procedural side of things. And I think it was, I remember reading that Jack Pidkovsky years ago um, said, and, and this was very prescient if I have him quoted correctly or cited correctly, um, is he said uh, criminal law is going to go the way of civil law over the next number of years. You're, and, and in civil law, you have to disclose your defense. You have to put forward a statement of defense And uh, uh, both sides know what the other side is going. He predicted decades ago that that's the way criminal law was going to go. And I haven't seen anything in the last few years to prove him wrong.
2: That's interesting. Um, I I certainly hope we don't get there, but I do see... Uh, you know, and I'm not the first to say this, but a slippery slope from J.J. to other areas of law because there's no principled reason why the reasoning in J.J. shouldn't apply to, say, domestic violence offenses. Yeah. Yeah. And then we're, you know, it, it, is that next?
1: And, and, and it happens in soft ways, too. Like, how many times have you guys been in judicial pretrials where the, the judge looks at you guys and says, so what's your client's defense? Yeah. And you've had to answer. It's going to be a surprise, Your Honor. <laughs> Like, But but the crown's there. They can hear it. They have a notepad in front of them. So even though it's an off-the-record JPT, if you say, well, my client's defense is going to be X, well, it's out of the bag at that point. But it happens in almost every JPT that it goes to. So it's not just in the case law, which has been bad and it's not just where the case law could go as naomi's just said in principle there's no reason it wouldn't go that way but we've been subjected to that for a long time in soft pressure
0: ways yeah the, the whole concept of the discussions that we have in jpt sometimes you know the judges really really put that pressure on us to to you know explain even with respect for instance if you're going to call an expert yeah despite what the criminal code says they want to know. They want to know early. They want to know if you're, you're, you have funding for next, it, if it's a legally aided client, you have to you basically like, is the is an expert issue going to thwart this, this prosecution in some way? And the crown's really put a lot of pressure on us that, oh, this is going to result in an adjournment. And if there's a jury present and it, the criminal code doesn't contemplate any of that. no, Right. But yet we have to give all this notice well in advance.
2: Yeah, I agree completely. And if you don't, you know, what, what's the 11B? Then you have to maybe wear the 11B consequence if there's an adjournment, and on and on and on. And um, yeah, we so there's all of those considerations to think about in terms of the pressure.
0: And inevitably, all of this results in it being more likely, in my opinion, that we're not going to be successful in in advancing some of our defenses. What do you mean? Well, I mean, you put like if you have to disclose your defense, you have to disclose an expert, you have to do all this in advance. Like, the, there's a lot of pressure on the defense to basically reveal how we're going to defend this case. Your likelihood of success goes down.
1: Uh, that's the point, isn't
0: it? <laughs> I don't know if that's the point. Well but-,
1: well, but that that's the point for the procedural hurdles. Like the sexual assault hurdles happened because Marie Henan won the John Gomeshi case. Yep. Like, like, let's be frank about it. Like, she won. There was an outcry. The criminal code provisions are to prevent a similar victory in future. I don't don't
2: disagree. That's exactly why they were enacted. Because, you know, how dare we confront a complainant and prove that she's lying?
1: And, And there's lots of policy reasons why these are... Uh, why someone could come on on this podcast and argue that for policy reasons those are good pieces of policy that that we want a system where complainants are not surprised on the stand by personal things that they've written etc etc like there there are those arguments have been made they've carried the day in supreme court litigation um and it And I realize it's slanted here. We have three defense lawyers, and there's nobody to push that side of it. But it's hard not to look at that legislation when it was passed, when it was announced, the form of it, and not say that this is done to uh, uh, try to ensure that the Marie win doesn't happen again with any frequency.
0: I know, but if, if Gomeshi happened today with the new legislation... I don't think Marie Hennen would lose that trial. I think her ability because to... because she's Marie Hennon. Well, but as I'm saying, like the <laughs> advocacy skills of the lawyers have to take a different approach. Okay, you might not be able to surprise the complainant, but you have all this ammunition. You still have the ammunition. Just because it's not coming by surprise, it doesn't mean it's any less effective necessarily if there's inconsistencies, lies, differences between what they've reported to the police and what they're in these text messages etc you're giving them an opportunity to think about it and explain Oh, i think it's significantly less effective
2: especially without a prelim so i think what you're saying might work if you had the opportunity at a prelim to first pin them down precisely to the version that you're later going to confront them with Um, but you know the that's been now taken away as well and the other i think the mistake about taking prelims away um, is it's going to necessitate mid-trial adjournments because of the Supreme Court upholding the new regime, and that wouldn't happen if you had the discovery aspect at a prelim.
1: And leaving open the the possibility of mid-trial applications yeah. explicitly in the judgment, exactly. Yeah. Which which I I remember reading that and going, you know, that part of it and going, whoa, like you're not exactly closing the door to chaos here and and lengthening of proceedings here. Which was, I thought, the idea of eliminating the prelim in the first place. Now you're basically downloading all of that mess onto the trial judge.
0: So are we going to have to send the jury away for a week, uh, two weeks to bring a two seventy eight mid trial once the complainant testifies uh, inc- inconsistent with the material that you have in your pocket, and all of a sudden you know about it? Right, because until you have that inconsistency, really, you it doesn't you really
2: crystallize. Have... That's right.
1: Okay.
0: Well, you guys know what happens, though, right? No. Like the courts
1: of appeal now are going to take that and the window that looks like it's yay big. And, and for the purposes of the record, my hands are about 18 inches apart right now. And then they narrow it to yay big. And for the purposes of my, of the record, my hands are about three inches apart. Now it's going to get narrowed as to when you can actually bring a mid trial application that, that the courts of appeal will narrow that because that's what they do to broad pronouncements from the Supreme court. Part of the role of the system is to prune as more cases go through. Are there going to be times when trials have to be stopped for a mid-trial application? Yes. Are they sending a jury away for a week to argue it? No chance. No chance.
0: Trial judges will try to deal with it as quickly and expeditiously as possible. Know, but-, but if the complainant requires counsel, that it's getting counsel is going to delay the matter. Like it's just inevitably going to be delayed. Like I've had jury trials... Where juries have been sent away for three weeks to argue a particular application, like it's, it happens. If it,
1: it, it will not happen with any degree of frequency going forward, but the window is open. Uh, the, the the bigger question I have is the fairness to the accused in all of it, because this all used to be thing. These all used to be things that used to come out uh, as a pretrial application, because you had a record from a preliminary hearing, right. and now you don't and and you're really asking a lot of your defense lawyers now because when this issue comes up you're going to be getting pressure from the bench to not bring the application because the jury's going to have to be sent away forever to argue it Uh, On the flip side, you've got this massive issue that's come up. And if you don't argue it and your client goes down, you know what's
0: going to happen on appeal.
2: Ineffective assistance. Uh,
1: Absolutely.
0: No, but you know what's interesting is that what, what this has really done, I found from our perspective as a defense counsel, is that it requires us to really, really walk through all the evidence that we have, our defenses, how these various routes will play out, and decide at that point because we are inevitably going to be faced with questions from the court saying, well, why didn't you bring this? Exactly.
2: And then is there, I I don't want to jinx it by by putting this out there kind of in the ether, but is there going to eventually be when this is narrow, as Andrews says, some kind of adverse inference that could be drawn against you or your client for not having, you you know, we're putting a lot of pressure on our clients to tell us, oh, actually I know that she posted such and such and so this exists out there so that we can then gather that evidence. What if, you know, we're relying on our clients. We're also relying on us to do all of that hard work up front that otherwise your client is just going to lean over to you while the complainant's on the witness stand and say, actually, such and such and such and such. And we used to be able to, to confront with that without the prior disclosure.
1: That's right. These are the questions Naomi and I are going to get when we're standing up doing the appeal after one of these losses. And, and I, I, I also, I want to say here, I really don't envy trial judges on this. Th- this, is, this, is, this regime has created uh, instances. Th- there are now so many ways trials can go sideways, even if it's judge alone. Uh, you add a jury on there and all the pressures that come with running a jury trial, uh, that just magnifies it. But, but trial judges now are left to essentially wade through this, often in the midst of the trial proper. And if you're looking for an orderly administration of justice and you believe that an orderly administration of justice creates better results at the end of the day, I
0: fail to see how this helps that. Well, in my experience, because I actually had the opportunity to litigate a case like this in a jury trial pre the Supreme Court decision in JJ, but after the legislation was enacted, so it was effectively the same as where we are now. Pretty much. A lot of the advocacy required me to really walk through, walk the judge through how I was going to use the material that I had if I received certain answers, if I received different answers. And the whole argument was these are tools that I want to have in my toolbox in the event that the witness goes. Left Or if the witness goes right. I may not need all of them. I may need some of them. I may need a portion of them. But if I wasn't able to answer those questions, I don't think I would have been as successful as I was on the 278 application. Because the judge was really leaning towards some novel issues that counsel for the complainant had, which is, why can't we just put this in as an agreed statement of fact? Why can't we, you know, minimize the, you know, the amount of damage that we're going to do to the integrity of the of my client, of her client, at that time? So there was a lot of issues that came up that I thought what experience, my experience in having done trials like this before, led me to be a little bit more successful with the judge and convincing the judge that look, I need this for this reason and I need this for this reason. But somebody who doesn't have that experience and just says, well, this goes to their credibility. Well, that's not going to be overly convincing until you're able to walk the judge through each and everything. But you need this certain level of, of confidence that no matter what I tell the court and the opposing side and counsel for the complainant right now, I'm still going to be able to execute it in order to get my client's defense forward. Because I felt, and I, at one point I just was so exasperated on the record and I said, I can't believe that I'm actually laying out not only my client's defense but the cross-examination that I intend to conduct in order to get this in, but I'm confident that I need to do this in order to, be, pr- to protect my client's interests. Yeah, and you're not going to win a two seventy six unless you do that. Exactly. You, you
1: can't.
2: And you're it. right. And everyone's in the room. The crown is listening. The you know maybe maybe complainant has counsel in there listening, and but yeah. you have to do it.
1: And the submission, well, it's, you know, this is going to be relevant to go to their credibility, and I, I can't really map out now why, but oh, wow. that's going to get you nowhere, nowhere. So it, it,
0: basically, as a younger lawyer who doesn't have that experience, you're really behind the nape ball.
2: You are. You need to pick it. And this is this is a real challenge for younger lawyers. I was just thinking about that as you were giving your example. Not only have you not done one of these before, so you may not know that, but do you have the confidence to lay it out, as you said, and still still know that you can execute it, no matter who's listening, don't focus on the people listening, And hopefully there's someone they can pick up the phone and and ask because that is going to be a huge challenge to young lawyers.
1: And it requires a lot of um, bravery for you to be able to, like there's there's a lot of this where you you really have to look at the the judge and the Crown and the complainant's counsel and, and they're going to be pushing you to disclose more and more um, and you've got to stick to your guns. You've got to have a sense of, of, of how far you can go to try to give your client the best chance to win while facing that pressure, especially from the bench hearing, you know, you've got the crown and the complainant's lawyer there and, and, and the way the law is developed, which again, as we've said, is pushing towards more and more defense disclosure. And And for young lawyers, it's hard because... As we've said, these issues can crop up mid-trial, and it's intimidating to stand up mid-trial and say, We need the jury to be excused, Your Honor. There's a significant issue that's arisen, and then raise an issue that could wrench the trial for a week. Like that like I I, I think we're all sitting here with now at least some degree of, of seniority and experience having run these cases. But when you were a second year lawyer. To stare up at at, at the at a, a Superior Court trial judge and say this case is going off the rails. That is hard and requires a lot of bravery and self-confidence and and a wish that you had the experience to know that you're right. And I don't envy the young lawyers now who are coming up doing their first sexual assault cases in this regime. And just know that um Your guiding principle always has to be, if this has to happen for your client, you have to stand up and do it. And no matter what the
0: consequences are in the moment, that's what you have to do. It reminds me of the first time I I had to bring a mistrial application, right? Called Andrew. So Andrew, I have to what do I do here? He goes, oh, you got you to ask for a mistrial. It's like, I've never asked for a mistrial before. It's like, Pull the bandaid off. <laughs> you, and, I, and then, and then I asked for about six in the same trial. You know what? You know how many people have called me over the years saying, Andrew,
1: this issue has arisen. It's so easy for me. I'm sitting in my office. I've got like YouTube up on my computer. Yeah. Just ask for a mistrial. Yeah, No Go, big deal. Just anger the judge right now. Do it, do it. <laughs> But usually it's the right thing to do. you got to put it on the record.
0: Right. I, I never was successful in a mistrial application. Does it,
1: you know what?
2: But you might have been on I, I, My colleague Seth and I won an appeal on a mistrial. Yeah. So you never know. You yeah.
1: Know. We've, won, we've won appeals where the, the, the where court of they, appeal explicitly said, said should, judge, have granted, should have yeah. granted
0: a mistrial. I know, but let's talk about that for a second because as a trial lawyer, you always feel like you know, this armchair quarterbacks that the, the appellate counsel look at you and be like, oh, I should have asked for a mistrial there. You, should have, you know, they, they're not factoring in the real things that are happening. A, you have a client who might be on bail. He might be living in some basement or maybe he's in custody and his trial's going well and he's not thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to protect my ground of appeal. I want to win the case now. You know, you still need to consult to a certain extent with your client and whether or not, you know, this explosion, if you're successful, is something he wants or she wants to go through. So, oh, you're,
2: you're right. It's easy for us to sit here, but I think, you know, Andrew and I do both sides, and I still am armchair quarterbacking, even though I know what it's like on the other side. But I think you still have to do it.
1: Because we're going to get those questions, Marco. Like, we're going to get the, yeah, I, you know, council, I get that there's a lot of issues at play here, but you're now standing in front of us saying that this error was so significant that it prejudiced the trial that your client, your, your client's fair trial rights in the moment. So trial counsel had a duty to do it. I'm getting those questions. So when I talk to trial counsel, I'm going to ask because there may be some explanation as to why you didn't ask for a mistrial. And, and I'm going to note. I've also won appeals and, and Naomi, you guys have won them too, where there wasn't a mistrial asked for. And you can put forward an explanation on the record as to why that was. And, and sometimes that can just be like counsel just didn't get up to do it because they missed it.
0: Right. It but happens. if the injustice is, is so great, why is it the fault of the defense counsel for not... like It's not just the defense counsel has to be a guard against the injustice in the trial.
1: That's right. But... So- but there's there's lots of times where experienced defense counsel make the tactical decision not to ask for a mistrial.
2: And that, and I think what Andrew's getting at is that's fine sometimes, but make sure that there's a reason so that yeah. we can answer the question when the Court of Appeal asks us. Because if there is a good reason, then they, they may go on to consider. And as Andrew said, people do win... When these appeals, even when either the objections, it's not just mistrials, the objections not made, for example, or an objection to something in the charge to the jury. That's, That's right. not always fatal to the appeal, but think about it. There has to be a good reason for it.
1: Yeah. Uh, Naomi's absolutely right. And, 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 you know, when we ask those questions, it, it, when you're trial counsel, there is, because we are all, all of us in this profession are A-type personalities, almost almost invariably like you have to be to be able to stand up for a client when their life is on the line and argue for them and be their champion right you have to you have to have a lot of belief in yourself and so when we, when when appellate counsel talk to trial counsel it's understandable that trial counsel um would feel a bit put out that they're being questioned like this or being um asked about why they didn't do something in the moment um And uh, I feel bad about the term Monday morning quarterbacking. That's how it feels, but it is necessary to us who prepare this appeal to understand how that trial felt, what was going through trial counsel's mind at the time when they took the tactical decisions they did because those three judges that we appear in front of are pretty bright and they've read a lot of these transcripts. And many of them were counsel themselves. And I can't tell you the number of times one of the members of that court looked down and say, well, why didn't counsel do this? And we need the answer to that. And, and that's really what we're doing when we're talking through this with trial counsel.
0: Right. But the, what I'm asking is, why would, if the injustice is great, why would the, a tactical decision undo the injustice on an appeal? You know, I could say, I could put an affidavit for it and say, I know I made a tactical decision here to n- not ask for a mistrial because I thought, you know, we were going to win the case, let's just say. And as an appellate counsel, you're looking and saying, but the injustice was so great that this person's trial was unfair, despite the tactical decision of the lawyer. Why would that undo the appeal? Is what I'm saying?
1: Well, but but that's the tension, right? It's not, a, it's not a, a zero-sum game. It's not because trial counsel didn't object, you lose the appeal. It's a factor to consider. But it's not the be-all and end-all. But if there's a good tactical reason for, for trial counsel to not have objected or not have asked for a mistrial, it becomes hard for us, on the other hand, to say, now your trial's unfair. Where's the unfairness here? you had the chance to say something, you waited in the moment, and you decided in the moment that my tr- my client has a better chance if I stay seated. Where is the trial unfairness there? And again, it's not a zero-sum game that the tactical decision may have been wrong. And the unfairness to anyone who looks at it from 10,000 feet, the way you're doing on an appeal, may say, That was the wrong decision. The unfairness clearly overtakes the tactical decision. But it is still a factor. Your counsel looked at that situation and said, you got a better chance to win if I don't say anything. In some ways, isn't that the essence of trial fairness? That you have the chance to make that tactical decision in the moment and that's the decision you make? Those are the questions that we're going to get.
2: And the analogy as well that the Crown will seize upon is, you know, they, they want the Court of Appeal to almost implicitly analogize it to deference to the trial judge. When we talk about deference in terms of fact, findings of fact and credibility, it's because, you know, the trial judge is there. They can see the witness. They're the ones who are there. We shouldn't interfere. Similarly, the Crown is going to say, well, trial counsel was there. And didn't say anything because it wasn't so bad. So it's an exa- essentially to say, well, they're just exaggerating now the unfairness in order to try and manufacture a ground of appeal. That's, that's why we need the answer.
1: I, I think it's a great analogy. And, and in certain cases, that's right. You as trial counsel, us three as trial counsel, we all do trials. You're there. You're seeing how the jury's reacting to certain evidence you're getting the sense and the flavor for how the case is going. That's that's such a significant part of running a trial. You're seeing if it's a judge alone trial, how the judge is interacting with pieces of evidence. And this issue now comes up and you've got a choice to make. And you think to yourself, it's never going to get any better for my client than this trial right now, even with this issue having happened. I'm not going to object. Or... I'll object but not ask for a mistrial. I'll ask for a corrective instruction. And then Naomi and I get up and say, Mr. Sharer shouldn't have asked for a corrective instruction. He should have asked for a mistrial. This was so bad. And and I'll tell you nine times out of ten what's going to happen with that Court of Appeal. We're going to get the crooked head. Uh, really? Really, Mr. Fergiualli? Because... Yeah, the, the, well, the sh- Mr. Fergiualli. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you'll get the... Char, Char always makes that mistake.
1: <laughs> just, you get the, just, just hold on a minute. <laughs> just hold on a minute. You're just in your mind when you're arguing the appeal, you're going, oh, great.
0: Let's Okay, let's pretend for a moment that you're actually the respondent on an appeal because I want to talk about this. We don't it.
2: have to all pretend. We sometimes are. Uh, <laughs> I want... <laughs>
0: I wanna, I wanna talk about this because um, nobody comes on to discuss being a respondent, and it's just something that's occurred to me in the past year on a couple of occasions where I've had success, a successful trial and crowns. You know, within that first thirty days, you're barely over the, you know, exhilaration of the win.
2: Yeah, and, and day twenty nine rolls around or thirty.
0: Oh, it's such a kick in the gut. And imagine um, how it is for your client, right? Exactly. Well, that's the other thing. So let's just talk about that for a second. Assume you're, because you both through trials and appeals. Assume you're going to take keep the file for the. First of all, is that a good idea to keep the file for the appeal?
2: I think that's a really good question, and I think it really depends on what the crown's grounds of appeal are. Um, so I, I think that a lot of people, and, and you, there's exceptions to every rule. Some of the the, the wisdom out there is. Don't act as the appellant if you were trial counsel. The same isn't necessarily true as the respondent. But, and to to go back to the conversation we just had, if there's a chance that you're going to get questions like that, even as the respondent on appeal, I would say you don't want to take, you want to refer this out. Um, you don't want to be trial counsel and the respondent if you're going to get those kind of tactical uh, decision questions. But if it's something like you know the trial judge erred in this one discrete area in charging the jury because they just got the law completely wrong on that, then then sure maybe there's no no reason why you shouldn't be uh, appellate counsel on that.
1: I think that's right. I, I, the only thing I would I would add is I think more often than not the calculus goes towards. Giving it to appellate counsel uh, because um, there are always strong chances that your um, your decision making is going to get questioned. Even yep. even if at first you're looking at it and saying, um, you know, not, none of this has to do with me. It's about a discrete error the trial judge made. There can still end up being questions come back. So be very sure mm-hmm. if you're going to act. As, as uh, appellate counsel off your own win.
2: And I would add to that as well, because even if I'm, I'm almost, I'm I'm not being inconsistent with what I just said, but you know, you do this calculus, you're looking at it, you think you're pretty sure, but maybe you've overlooked something that you should be cross appealing on.
1: Yeah, that's a good point.
2: So, so, you know, make sure that you really think about it and talk to people before you decide to keep it. And you're going to get pressure from your client though. This is the client's going to say, well, but you know the case. I've already spent all of this money on you or, you know, if it's a, if it's a private client, please, I want you to do the appeal. And so you're going to have to weigh that calculus as well.
1: And in your client's (laughs) eyes, you're the winner. You won. Why should they, why should they now jump off a horse that won the first race and, and now go on to a new horse?
0: Right. Well, let's start just taking one step back on what bait, like do the crowns have the same latitude for appealing as the defense?
1: No. No. The, the, first off, there's the law, uh, which... Um, Always
2: a good place to start. It, I guess, yeah.
1: <laughs> Let's start with the law, I guess. So the, the law is more difficult for crowns to appeal uh, than for an accused. First off, there, there's no um, unreasonable verdict route of appeal for a crown. You can't say that the, the acquittal was simply unreasonable. Second, um, crowns cannot apl- um, appeal on a question of fact alone. Now those
2: they try and yeah we'll talk about how they try and get around they, this but, and, and
1: are often successful yeah. at doing it um and now lots of things are questions of law now even if you look at it and say gee that sounds pretty factual to me but nevertheless that exists that crowns cannot simply say um, a- appeal on a question of fact they have to appeal on a question of law
2: and law alone not mixed fact and law That's as right. well um and even if they've identified a question of law alone it can't just be any kind of question of law. This is the kind of the reverse of uh, appellate counsel's um, 686, but it has to be something that was so bad that it actually affected the trial.
1: That's right. And um, The
0: trial or the verdict? Trial or the verdict? The verdict. The verdict.
1: Uh, uh, it has to have had uh, a real reasonable uh, uh, possibility that the verdict would have been different. Yeah. The fourth factor is that The Crown Law Office and the PPSC, uh, frankly, um, uh, take that seriously. They don't appeal very often. Now, that's a double-edged sword for when this happens. Number one, the good edge of the sword is, it means if you get an acquittal, the chances that the Crown is going to appeal it are quite slim. The bad edge of the sword is that when they do it, the court knows they don't do this very often. So they must have a real problem with this. So we're going to take a real close look at this because the crown doesn't take this step very often.
2: Yeah. I'm glad you raised that because it, it also means that there's a, don't just think that because you won the trial, It's going to be an easy thing to respond because guess what? Crowns win their crown appeals a lot for that reason.
1: That's right. Because they don't happen very often. Now there's one other uh, small point. There are two things crowns can by law ask for on a crown appeal. One is a new trial, which is a high hurdle. Um, But then the second thing they can ask for is for a conviction to be substituted for an acquittal. And that's an even higher hurdle. Um, that happens very rarely, and I will say that, the, that, that that hurdle, that second step, the courts of appeal have been extremely reluctant to, to use. I, I, it, it's happened so rarely over the last 20 years, you could count it on one hand. It has to essentially have been inevitable that the, the error caused the acquittal and that there was no reason to send it back, but, but courts of appeal are rightly really really hesitant to ever impose that so you'll see when crowns ask for that much more often than not they'll get the new trial if they're going to win but they won't get the conviction substituted what
0: about if it's a like a charter appeal
1: that's one of the differences where where uh, that's one of the possibilities where but for the erroneous charter where where evidence was excluded evidence was excluded if the evidence had gone in counsel were all of the view that the 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 result was going to follow then then it's safe to do that but they don't like doing it in in other types of cases
0: so what's the timeline like uh crown has 30 days to file mm-hmm. and then how does it work in terms of the timeline for prepping a respondent appeal
1: well uh, so it's the it's the exact reverse of the uh, the parties are simply reversed the crown has filed their notice of appeal they're now subject to the timelines for perfecting the appeal um, and then once the appeal is perfected. They will get a date. Uh, they and you and the court of appeal will set a date for the appeal, and then you work backwards from that date per the rules. I think it's three weeks. I think before. it's maybe five now. Actually, oh, I, have, ex- I
2: think it might be. This is, it shows you how frequently Andrew and I respond yeah. that we don't know this, but it's. I think it's four or five weeks before the hearing date is when your factum as the respondent is due. So it's all. Yeah, it's you work backwards from whenever the hearing date is set.
1: Yeah, that's been extended. It used to be like. yeah like two or
2: three weeks it was very yeah
0: so at what point do you engage appeal counsel do you wait to see what the crown's argument is whether no don't
2: do that because i just got one of those two days ago um and the hearing date is already set for six weeks hence and so that's a problem so don't do that mr or ms accused out there and trial counsel as soon as you get the notice of appeal that's when you should be engaging appellate counsel that's when you should start to think through You know, does this look like a viable appeal? What might, you know, uh, what might I need to do? Should I keep it? Should I not? All those considerations. And then what I mentioned earlier, is there a cross appeal? And so that's a serious thing that you're going to need to think about up front because there will be a time limit to if you want to cross appeal, which just means did I, you know, even though I won, did the trial judge make some errors along the way, which I now want to point to because it would benefit me if those errors were corrected.
1: Absolutely right. <laughs> it, it, and I, I'm really, I, again, I'm happy Naomi raised this because the cross appeal, you have the same 30-day time limit. So if the Crown Appeal comes in on day 29, you got a day to decide whether there's a cross appeal. So for trial counsel out there, if uh, you get an acquittal, have in the back of your mind something that might have happened during the trial Some evidentiary issues, some ruling that the judge gave to the Crown that if there is a Crown appeal, you can say to appellate counsel right away, you know, there was this issue too. At the very least, then we can put the notice in and preserve the cross-appeal rights.
0: Now, when you're arguing from the respondent perspective, is it different than when you're arguing from the appellate perspective? Yes. Okay. Okay can you elaborate <laughs> No we thank have, thank you I'm uh, not no Thanks. this podcast <laughs> is over <laughs> I, like, I'm lobbing softball questions that I may or may not know the answer to but uh, the point is I don't want to uh, uh, explain anything cuz I don't really know the the true answers to them You, saw the, you start That's why oh, I Sure
2: asking. so I I think one of in some ways it's you know it's easier in that Um, You can really rely on all the factual findings of the trial judge. So you're going to be hammering on, no, 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 but look, the trial judge, excuse me, the trial judge found this, this, and this. We can't interfere with that. So you're going to be going back to the reasons and really um, kind of hammering home on those. If there's anything which creeps into looking like a question of fact or a question of mixed fact and law, as as Andrew said, which are not permissible roots of Crown appeal. Those are what you're going to have to be really alive to. And you're going to be trying to frame everything the Crown is doing as something which is not a true question of law alone. So that's going to be one of the things that you're arguing um, you're also going to be arguing deference to the trial judge, deference to their findings. Trial judges are presumed to know the law. All of the things that we who are usually acting for the appellant hear from the Crown, it's now our chance to throw that back in the Crown's face, essentially, uh, and, and say, nope, the trial judge did a perfect job, and here's why.
1: Um, what I'd add to that is this. Yeah, the law is good for us as respondents on appeal. But you know where else it's good for us? On the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's also good for us on the circumstantial evidence cases where you have to negate every reasonable possibility. And you know what? We lose those. So as respondents, even though the law is really good for us when the Crown appeals, the realities of the situation are the Crown wins their appeals Mm -hmm. at a more frequent clip, as Naomi said earlier, than than accused appellants do for the factors we set out earlier. So you have to go on offense. And you can't just say trial judge deference, trial judge deference, trial judge deference. I mean, anyone could do that. But you have to go on offense in the sense that you have to make clear for the court as best you can. Not only that the trial judge got it right on whatever the issue that's being appealed, but that this was a case where an acquittal was the proper result. And so what, what I like to do when I'm framing this as an advocacy tool is think to yourself, why was this man, this person acquitted? And frame that for the judge and do your best to tie those reasons directly into why the trial judge got it right. And that may mean an introductory set as to what the trial judge was facing that led them to acquit. And then go from there to explain why the errors that the crown asserts as errors are not really errors at all. But it's a mix of you get to rely on deference. Naomi's absolutely right. You, you have to as a respondent, right? Like th- that's a tool in your toolbox. Just like when you're at trial, the, the, the high burden on the crown is always something you're going to go to. But you can't just sit back and say the judge got it right you have to proactively explain not just why these evidentiary issues are right, but why the result as a whole, holistically, why those rulings fit holistically within the way the trial developed. And the good appellate crowns, they do that. The best appellate crowns don't stand up and say, I'm going to start with issue number one uh, and address that the appellant is wrong. Well, now you're on my turf as the appellant. Now you're fighting where I want you to fight. And when the Crown's the appellant, it doesn't work to stand up and say, well, let me address this argument right off the hop. You're immediately going to something that they've identified as a problem and have been comfortable arguing at the court. Start by framing the case the way it's supposed to be framed, that this was a case where there was reasonable doubt all of these reasons. You can set it out in an introduction into how the the case unfolded and then go. Get your terrain. Get on your terrain and then go to the errors that are asserted.
2: I think Andrew's point about framing is a really good one because this is your opportunity in your responding factum to not accede to the grounds necessarily in the way that the Crown has outlined. And I'm sure we've both been on the receiving end when you get the Crown's responding factum and they've completely reframed your issues and you go, oh, God damn it. You know, this, yeah, this, this is compelling advocacy. And so, and it is, yeah, they're they're right. Your factum has to respond in order to the way that they framed their issues. You don't have to. And so from the very, from the get-go in the factum, that's your opportunity to do as Andrew says, and really reframe the issues.
1: Yeah. And and there's, the, the one other thing I'd like to add, and uh, I know Naomi and I are, are, are aligned on this too, is, is sometimes the judge gets it wrong, and you're the respondent. You got to admit it. And if they clearly get the law wrong on something, you're not going to be able to argue they didn't get it wrong, right? Like, and and that's that's just what. The, the rules of engagement in that case are going to be. But if, if you frame it properly at the outset, the way we've discussed, it, it not only helps you perhaps respond to that error as not an error, but more particularly the second part of that test, which is, yeah, it was an error, but it, it's not one that gets the crown over the hurdle. And we've both had respondent appeals where we've won, where the court said, look, this may well have been an error that the judge made here, but it's not the sort of error where we can say that the acquittal has to be busted
0: up because of it. Just on that um, issue of winning, as appeal lawyers, do you find because your decisions are reported and reviewed by a large mem- like large portion of the bar? Because a lot of us read the court of appeal website regularly, do you find that there's a certain level of collegiality amongst? Do people reach out to you with wins and losses. Yeah. And I saw that up. Did you see that? Yeah,
2: for sure. Um, I not super recently, I guess it was probably a year ago now, but I, I had a loss, which, um, uh, Brian and I did that. I've, I'm still annoyed about cause I think it's wrong. Um, and I've never had so many lawyers reach out to me either to say, wow, that was, that was weird or, Hey, I don't understand that or sorry about that, but it is really collegial. The appellate bar, as a whole, is pretty collegial. Um, more than pretty, we're we're quite collegial. It's a smaller, it's a subset of criminal law, and criminal law, as we all know, is itself a very collegial bar.
1: Yeah, and and we will both get we'll get trial lawyers as well, um, who who uh, read the court of appeal webs- uh, website regularly, which I very much encourage people practicing any part of criminal law to do. Uh, I read the court of appeals criminal decisions every day, um, religiously. And so lots of lawyers do that, and they'll often reach out after a win or a loss, um, uh, and uh, uh, just with a few words of encouragement or consolation.
2: And just on that, the other, just as a kind of a practice step, the other good reason people should be reading the website is you get to, you might say, oh, hey, I've got a case that just came in the door and I'm pretty sure I read a case recently and about that similar issue. But you may reach out to the counsel who was on that and they can be very helpful to you, share materials, not reinvent the wheel.
1: That's right. I'm ha- I mean, we're both happy to share our materials. I've, we've both had that happen. I, I'm sure it's happened for you. It's happened for me lots where, hey, I saw you won this appeal. I've got the same issue. Do you mind sharing your fact of- I'm yep. always happy to do that.
0: Yeah, I did that uh, with you on that issue, on that trial that I did. It didn't work out for me. But uh. That's that, that was an appeal that didn't work out for me, if I remember the issue correct. It's okay. So. You're going to get a second kick at that can, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, those always go well. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi, what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of the, their career? Or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish you had an opportunity to observe before they retired? Um, you don't have to say Brian Greenspan. We can impl- uh, we can yeah. imply that Good. he's. So, on, she doesn't uh, on the- have to, but you will, Brian.
2: If you're listening, <laughs> no. um, I'm going to choose someone outside my firm. As you know, I'm lucky to practice with many great lawyers. I'm very privileged where where I practice, and I've been there since I articled and have learned from all of my colleagues. But I'm going to pick Marlis Edward, um, who was, is just a phenomenal lawyer and a phenomenal intellect, and. Uh, who I guess many people were surprised actually retired. Criminal lawyers don't usually retire, but Marlis actually retired. Um, And I'm very lucky to have done a case with her. And it was a very serious sexual assault with two co-accused back when we had prelims. And so working on that, you know, for the years that that case was around, uh, it was a real honor to kind of see how Marlis attacked a case. And, and how she worked up a case. And, and the other thing that really always stuck with me um, is how much somehow, for whatever odd reason, Marlis wanted to know what I, as like a fourth year lawyer at the time, thought, which was kind of astounding to me to think, well, you're Marlis Edward, why do, you know, why do you care? But she genuinely always wanted to know what people thought because I think she's her nature is just so curious. So that curiosity is not just about every case and every angle of the case, but how each person's brain may function slightly differently in terms of how they look at the case. And so all of those perspectives, almost like a sponge, she would soak up and that was part of her preparation. As how, and that just always stuck with me, not just on a personal level that, you know, she really cared and wanted to hear my voice on things, but watching how she approached people and their perspectives was always so fascinating.
0: Andrew, do you have uh, any anybody else you wanted to add yeah, to this list?
1: Yeah, I did. Well, I did this last time, so I'll pick somebody different. Um, and I mean, I think Marlis is probably going to be the most popular answer here. I think lots of people uh, with very good reason choose her. She was, uh, she's on the short list for the greatest criminal lawyer who's ever practiced in this country. Um, I'll go with a different answer. Um, I'll go with a very um, sort of, standard answer I would have liked to see Robinette practice um, I I might be one of the only people in the last 20 years who bought his biography that Justice Finlayson wrote of him and I read it and it was interesting and, and sort of a simplistic answer but he was always reputed to be the best lots of people who saw him said he was the best and I would have liked to have seen him in action to see um, if the what made him the best was apparent when I saw him and see the difference in eras and what made someone the best when he practiced versus what might work or not work nowadays and the biography was interesting I recommend it it has two colons in the title it's John Robinette colon peerless mentor colon an appreciation
0: rare to see two colon titles how daring
1: I know (laughs)
0: I just want to comment one thing that I I made a weird observation of the other day, which is that Marlis Edward is the only female lawyer to be awarded the G. Arthur Martin Award. Okay, I'm glad you brought this up because I had this discussion
1: with some friends. That's a travesty. This award has been given out, what is it, 40 times now or something? 1989 was the first one. G. Arthur Martin obviously was the first winner. So there are so many female counsel who could be given this award. And I do not say this to take away from the many men who have got this award. But there are only three women who have got this award. And you're right that only one of them practiced criminal law, so, uh, criminal defense in this province so far as I can tell because the other two women were Chief Justice McLaughlin and Justice Arbour.
0: I think they were judges at the time.
1: Both. Well, they certainly were judges at the time, but, uh, but I mean... At I, the I time they were given the award. They were, but also earlier in their career, I, I don't know about Justice Arbour, but I don't know that either of them are actually defense lawyers, certainly not in this province. Justice McLaughlin practiced at West. If you think of all the women... And CLA is is primarily an Ontario-based organization. If you think of all the women over the last 100 years or 50 years or whatever you want to put, who have practiced law in this province, we've given it to one.
0: How about Justice Michelle first? Or Canada. We go gets Canada wide because yeah. there's people across it is. Canada. So there's been
2: people across Canada. I'm confident we'll get there. You're right. I'm confident we will get there. We need to. And yeah, J- Justice First is a great I'm- example of a jurist. There's lots of women jurists who have made a real contribution.
1: Oh, she was a partner at a, at a five-star firm in this province, was a high-ranking defense counsel for years, and is now uh, the regional senior justice of a large region and has done that job with in an exemplary fashion for years now and i hope she gets it next year and i hope she's the first of many but i'm glad you brought this up
0: what are your thoughts on this idea of of giving this award to judges who whose impact has been as a judge that's fine in my view
1: and you know, I talked to John Rosen uh, a while back, and he brought up something interesting, which is that this wasn 't just supposed to be an award for best like a lifetime lawyer achievement award. He had an idea originally of of saying like why don 't we give it to Joyce milgard, who uh, uh, some listeners will know was was uh, david milgard 's mother, who was a tireless advocate for her son 's innocence, and she was ultimately proven right, but she was she kept that case alive for the 20 years where, where he was uh, uh, unfairly and unjustly uh, uh, in prison. So it, it's not just meant to be a best lawyer of all time award.
2: Yeah, and I, I mean, we, I don't want to turn the CLA into the Oscars where at the fall conference we give out 10 awards. But maybe some of people's frustrations is that people are tr- trying to have it do too much. In other words, because it was originally designed to be this contribution to the criminal law as opposed to recognizing, you know, an outstanding defense lawyer or a lifetime achievement award almost. So maybe we need a second award. Maybe there's more room uh, for recognition than just this one award each year.
1: There are lots of participants in the justice system who further the aims and the goals that, that our organization, that the CLA
0: aims to promote well the the award recognizes an individual who has made significant contributions to criminal justice in Canada period journalists judges uh advocates um
1: there there are there are a whole host of people that are not just defense
0: lawyers who could get this award do you think crowns should be on this list
2: I don't know. That's a, that's a really interesting question. I've actually never turned my mind to that. I think philosophically there's not. There's no good you know, policy reason not if there was someone who truly made that contribution. Um, and this is not meant as a slight to the crowns, but nobody comes to mind right now. It's not as if I can think of someone, but never say never. Maybe there will be a crown who has done so much that they really deserve that award.
1: I think whoever hosts the Law Garage podcast is exactly the sort of person. Never mind crowns. (laughs) Podcast
0: hosts. We left just enough space to edit that out. Naomi Lutz and Andrew Frigiole, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the Law Garage and share your experience with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe there is something to gain just from talking to our colleagues. Before we leave, is there anything either of you would like to plug? Naomi.
2: Well, I'm going to plug a book that probably nobody has heard of um, that I authored a, a chapter in, so I'll, I'll give a little plug to uh, a sentencing text published by Irwin Law in 2020. Um, and it's it's a combination of essays both on sentencing law and kind of policy, um, kind of a, a textbook type of cha- uh, book. But I, I wrote a chapter on the role of defense counsel in sentencing. So I'm going to give that book a plug.
0: Andrew?
1: I plug John Robinette Fearless mentor and Colon, don't forget the colons. Two colons in between each of those things.
0: <laughs> Andrew, Naomi, thanks for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the La Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes. Executive Producer Jason Cooper and Associate Producers Christina Stahl, Remy Santzaval, and Matthew Takamatsu. The La Garage is a J. Mike podcast production.